This is a classic case of law enforcement finding a quick end to the investigation. I don't think there was a chance in hell that they were not going to convict me at that trial. I had no chance. The most important piece of evidence that convicted Jens Soaring in the brutal murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem in 1990 was a bloody sock print. We now know that that was just junk science. One juror told a local newspaper shortly after the verdict that it was the physical evidence that convicted Jens, saying, quote, What he wrote didn't convict him and what people said didn't convict him. It was what he left behind. Besides the sock print, what was left behind was blood, lots of it. A forensic scientist at the Virginia Crime Lab named Mary Jane Burton testified at the trial that she found five drops of type O blood at the crime scene and that Yen Soaring had type O blood. Prosecutor Jim Updike repeated that more than two dozen times at trial, and Jens was found guilty, sentenced to life in prison. Two decades later, the blood evidence used at trial to convict him has been retested, and it tells a very different story about what happened the night the Hasems were murdered. New testing suggests Jens wasn't at the crime scene, but two unidentified men were. Those DNA revelations have helped build support for Yen's innocence among a variety of influential people. Chip Harding ran for Albemarle County Sheriff on the Republican ticket, but the sign hanging above his desk transcends politics and reads, God is neither Republican nor Democrat. Chip is a country boy who loves to hunt and fish. His white hair is cut short and his electric blue eyes light up when he talks about his wife and grandkids. His interest in DNA testing goes back 20 years to the mid-1990s when three young girls in central Virginia were abducted from their homes and found days later murdered. Two of the girls were sisters, 12-year-old Katie and 15-year-old Kristen Lisk. The little Lisk girls were abducted out of, they got off the school bus and went home and her daddy called and they didn't answer. And he was very concerned and drove to the house and there was a half drunk milkshake there and the girls had disappeared and their bodies were found, I think, three or four days later floating in a lagoon. Chip was a police detective in Charlottesville at the time and he had a personal connection to the Lisk family. He wanted to help solve that case. I knew the grandfather who went to my church. And I'd been reading about DNA in England, what was going on. So I said, well, what the heck's going on with DNA in Virginia? I never paid any attention to it because I hadn't heard of any cases or anything. You know, in Charlottesville Police, we never used uh, DNA. So this was 1998, so I started to research what was going on in Virginia. Chip called the head of the state's forensic lab and was invited to see for himself. And he said, I'll show you what's going on. We founded the first DNA data bank in, in the country in 1989, but they didn't ever appropriate the funding necessary. So he showed me roughly 140,000 samples of vials of blood in refrigerators down in the bottom of the lab. And he said, here's some of the most evil people in Virginia's blood, and I've never had the money to get the profiles in the data bank. Chip got to work and founded Citizens for DNA to lobby legislators in Virginia to fund the DNA data bank. With the help of the Lisk girl's grandfather, they convinced the state to put $7 million towards funding the data bank within a year. DNA eventually helped identify the killer of the Lisk girls, 
and the data bank revolutionized criminal investigations in Virginia. We went from two to three hits a year to two to three hits a day. Charlottesville police started submitting DNA samples from all of their cold cases to see if they could get a hit in the data bank. And they did. And then we were just banging them up, bing, 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 getting, getting serial offenders and rapists and murder cases and stuff started clearing. Over the next several years, Charlottesville led the country in DNA hits per capita. After 30 years with the Charlottesville Police Department, Chip Harding was elected sheriff of Albemarle County, which surrounds Charlottesville. He says he used DNA to put a lot of people in prison, but he also uses it to help get people out. In the 90s, as Chip was learning the ins and outs of DNA in Virginia, a music mogul in New York City named Jason Flom was discovering and signing some of the biggest musical acts in the world, Matchbox 20, Jewel, Kid Rock. While he was running record labels, Jason had an eye-opening experience with the criminal justice system that would change his life and many others. He's now the host of a hit podcast called Wrongful Conviction. We interviewed him for this story in November of 2019 in his high-rise apartment overlooking Central Park. I read an article in the newspaper. I have that newspaper here somewhere um, in 1993. And the article was about a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a New York State prison. And uh, I just freaked out. I, I decided I had to do something. And um, I had no idea what could be done. I didn't know anything about mandatory sentencing laws. But I did know that as a kid, I had had a drug problem. And uh, I went to rehab. So it felt close to home. Jason called a defense attorney, Bob Kalina, to see if he could help. He he represented two of my uh, artists, because I'm in the music business, by day. Um, And uh, I I called Bob, and I said, Bob, is there anything? You know, he represented Stone Temple Pilots and Skid Row, two of my artists, and they were getting arrested weekly. So, you know, I had him on speed dial. So I called Bob, and I said, Bob, is there anything you can do? He goes, there's nothing you can do. It's the Rockefeller Drug Laws, which is a New York State law that made New York State one of the worst states in the country to be caught with drugs. Jason couldn't stop thinking about the case. He convinced Bob to take it on pro bono. They ended up finding a legal loophole in the case. And six months later, they were in a courtroom in upstate New York. Jason sat with Steve Lennon's family. The judge, who was some older guy who looked like Ted Forsyth with with white hair and everything, I thought, this is not going to go well, you know. (laughs) But then he listened to the arguments back and forth, and then he said a bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo, which I didn't understand, and then he bangs a gavel down. And he goes, the motion is granted. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? And so Bob comes over, and I was like, Bob, what happened? And he goes, we won. I was like, we won? He goes, we won. I go, fuck, that's amazing, right? So that's how I got started. Jason became a founding board member of the Innocence Project. And years later, he was in Charlottesville, speaking on a panel about criminal justice reform. Almoral County Sheriff Chip Harding was also on the panel, and they forged a friendship. And we're strange bedfellows, right? He's a conservative Republican lifetime law enforcement officer. But, but he and I agree on lots of stuff, including the fact that Jens is actually and totally and demonstrably innocent. So how did Chip and Jason become part of the Jens Soren case? And why do they believe in his innocence? It all goes back to the blood at the crime scene. In 2001, an attorney with the Innocence Project, trying to clear the name of his own client, found unexpected evidence in his client's case file. 
the longtime head of the forensic lab in Virginia, Mary Jane Burton, had saved crime scene samples from all of her cases, dating back to the 70s, against lab policy. She had cut a piece of the cotton swabs used to collect blood samples, and those blood samples were still taped to the inside of those case folders. The DNA was tested in that case, and the Innocence Project client was exonerated. 30 more random case files were tested using Mary Jane Burton's saved samples, and two more men were cleared. Three out of the first 31 cases that were retested for DNA resulted in overturned convictions in Virginia. Chip says that discovery of Burton's files rocked the state's criminal justice system and prompted then-Governor Mark Warner to take action. At that point, Mark Warner said, I'm going to get the money, and he got $2 million something We're going to run all her cases. So they pulled all her files that had anything in them, and a number of folks got exonerated. One of the case files Mary Jane Burton had saved was from Jens Soaring's trial. The file had 42 blood samples that had never been tested for DNA. They were tested in 2009. None of them matched Jens Soaring's DNA. In prison, Jens received a report with the results. This is a prepaid debit call from... Jens Zerling. An inmate at Virginia Department of Corrections. This all came as part of the so-called post-conviction DNA testing program. At that point, all I could really say was is that they did 42 tests and none of those tests are mine. Which is interesting, but it doesn't get you all the way there. But it wasn't until several years later, during a phone call with his attorney, Steve Rosenfield, when they suddenly realized the significance of that DNA report. Oh my God. I mean, Steve and I were shouting at each other, and he was so excited. At one point, he, uh, he said, look, i got to call somebody, and he just slammed down the phone. You know, we understood that up until that point, it was all about reasonable doubt. But now, this was just a classic case of a DNA exoneration. The blood report done in 1985 found five drops of type O blood at the crime scene, some on a door handle at the Haysom home. Jens had type O blood, but none of it was tested for DNA at the time. So when Jens and Steve compared the blood report from 1985 to the DNA report from 2009, they realized the type O blood on the door handle, the same blood prosecutor update had told the jury belonged to Jens, could not have been his. The male victim, Derek Hasem, didn't have typo blood. So that meant another man with typo blood had bled at the crime scene. The very same typo blood samples that they had used to convict me with were now proven by DNA to have been left by somebody else who also had typo blood but a completely different genetic profile. And the only way to see this is by comparing two forensic reports that were like, uh, let me see, um, 24 years apart. The serology report from 1985 and the DNA report from 2009. And that wasn't all they discovered. AB blood had also been found in the kitchen at the Hasem home near Nancy Hasem's body. That made sense because Nancy Hasem had AB blood. But the 2009 DNA test showed some of that AB blood belonged to a man. I found there were two samples of AB blood that had 
XY chromosomes, and there were also some other differences in the genetic profile between those two samples and Nancy Hazen's blood. So what that showed was that in addition to there being this man with type O blood, who was not me because he had a different genetic profile, there was also a second man there with AB blood. In December of 2016, the new DNA discovery was brought to the parole board. But despite what many felt was convincing evidence of his innocence, Jens was denied parole for the 12th time in early 2017. That shocked the hell out of me. I was furious and depressed and everything else. My lawyer spoke with the people in Richmond, and he told me that they said that um, they needed to do an investigation first to figure out which one of us was lying me or Elizabeth Hayes. Undeterred, Yen's attorney Steve began reaching out to law enforcement and DNA experts in Virginia to build support for Yen's claim of innocence. Chip Harding was one of the first people Steve contacted. Stephen Rosenfield came into my office and said he was trying to help somebody with a pardon request and would I take a look at a part of it to see if I saw any weaknesses or saw a way to strengthen it. And I asked, may I ask who it is? And he said, Yen Soren. And I said, well, as I'm concerned, he's guilty from everything I know about it, Steve. I'd be glad to look at it. But my God, he confessed to it. The girlfriend said, confessed to her. And they've got, I think, something about his shoe prints and blood or something. That's what I remember. And he said, well, would you just give me an hour? All I ask is for an hour. So I said, give me what you got. I'll take it home with me this weekend. And then the hours turned into, I don't know how many hundreds of hours. So, While Chip reviewed the nitty-gritty details of the investigation, Steve also reached out to two world-renowned DNA experts. One is a professor at Liberty University in Lynchburg, and we interviewed him there about the DNA results and what they mean. For me, the DNA just really stood out that it wasn't in Soaring's. So you can have, uh, for instance, blood type O from a piece of evidence, blood type O from a suspect, and when you do the analyses, the DNA profiling, it doesn't matter if they're both the same blood types because the DNA is going to provide the information that you need to make an identity and to demonstrate that these two contributors of the sample are different. Dr. Thomas McClintock is the author of a manual on DNA testing and serology that's used throughout the world. He's worked on hundreds of cases and published research papers over the past three decades. How hard would it be to commit that kind of a crime and not leave any DNA evidence? I think impossible. If you recall the Peanuts cartoon, there is a character that's called Pigpen, and everywhere Pigpen goes, he has a ball of dust. As humans, we shed tens of thousands of cells per day. And if you could see those cells that we shed, I think all of us would look like pig pen. And so just walking from place A to B, you're leaving your DNA everywhere. So I think it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to leave something, whether it's intentional or not. And so, in your expert opinion, do you think Yen Soaring was at that crime scene? I don't. At least the DNA evidence suggests strongly that he wasn't there. Um, now, there are ways you could 
minimize contaminating a scene, but the mess that was left in these brutal murders, um, I think it would be difficult for him not to have left something there. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of evidence that suggests he wasn't there, but it's hard to prove a negative also. And do you think that the evidence shows that there might have been other people there? Yes. We also spoke with a second DNA expert, Dr. Moses Shanfield, a professor of forensic science at George Washington University. Shanfield, like McClintock, has decades of experience, and he also reviewed the evidence in the Hasem murders. How hard would it be to commit the killings and not leave any blood or, or DNA evidence anywhere at the scene that's collected? In my experience, very hard, because these people are stabbing people, and in Almost every case I've worked on where somebody's been stabbing somebody else, these people aren't using appropriate knives for killing people. They use crappy knives. So they use kitchen knives without hilts, which means as soon as you strike bone, there's a likelihood that your hand's going to slide over the blade. It's very, very hard, even back then. The fact that there were so many people bleeding and you had blood on the door exiting, the, the likelihood is somebody cut themselves. Shanfield says the DNA results are clear. There's DNA from two unidentified men at the scene, that typo blood on the door handle and the AB blood from the countertop. In your expert opinion, was Yen Suring at the crime scene? There's no evidence that he was there. As Sheriff Chip Harding continued to sift through evidence and interview people involved in Yen's case, he arrived at the same conclusion as those DNA experts. Yen Soaring wasn't at the crime scene the night of the murders, and he identified evidence that could help reveal who was there. And there are well over 200 items that we feel like should be retested. Among the items that could be tested for DNA now, the blood streak on the countertop in the kitchen, a hair found in the bedroom where someone washed off blood, and cigarette butts found outside. But Bedford authorities refused to reopen the case, and they maintained they got the right man, Jens Soaring. The naysayers and those that convicted him are looking for every excuse possible to say there's a mistake made here, it couldn't be, he's guilty. We on the other side are saying we have nothing to hide. Jens would love to see the test. Let's do further testing with new DNA technology, yet they refused to do it. Chip Harding isn't the only one asking for Bedford to take a second look at the case. Remember Chuck Reed? He was one of the original lead investigators in the case, and he still lives in Bedford County. He's also calling for his former colleagues at the Bedford Sheriff's Office to do further forensic testing. If nothing else, let's get this stuff back to the lab to get it checked out to make sure we don't have a murderer or two running around loose out here. Next on Small Town Big Crime tension between two sheriffs. Did he ever see this crime scene? Did he ever see the house? Did he ever see any of the evidence? And how does he know more about this case, having never been there, never seen it, only reading and listening to what somebody else has told? How does he know more about what took place and transpired than several police officers that were there? You had a very immature uh, inexperienced, basically incompetent investigator who's now the chief deputy down there who 
who wants this all to go away. Are you kidding me? But even if officials in Bedford refuse to test the evidence for DNA, there may be one person who could shed light on what happened that night. Elizabeth Hasem. So who is Elizabeth, and why would she want her parents dead? That's next on Small Town Big Crime. Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.